Jerry has a lot more self-control than I do. He went through the whole lady prayer process and didn't even mention the Red Raiders. So I'm, you know, but I, I don't have that kind of self-control. So, um, no, not really. But um, I want to welcome you again this morning. Uh, I want to ask for your prayers uh, for Amberly. You know, y'all have done such a good job over the years of training up uh, those who preach and who lead that it's not uncommon for us any given Sunday to have one or two of us out in other churches in the community or uh, in the in the county, uh, or in this case in Abilene, uh, filling pulpits as guest preachers. So Amberly's in Abilene today at Elmwood West United Methodist Church. And um, so I appreciate your prayers for her uh, here in, in a few minutes. In the text that Jerry read for us, Luke gives us a time marker. And he says, at that very time, and he begins to tell us about an exchange between Jesus and some folks. And he's telling us that, you know, it's like Jesus can't hardly get a breather. You know, he's on the road to Jerusalem. He is, they're, they're asking him all kinds of questions about how things are going to end, how it's all going to shake out. You know, that existential fear of how everything ends for me and for you. And Jesus has engaged them on that level. And he's talking to them about how it all shakes out in the end. You know, is there justice? What does God say about this or that? Or how is it all going to happen? Jesus can't catch a breather. At this very time, they continue to talk. They continue to ask. And so there were some present at that time. They began to tell him about these, this story about the, the Galileans that Pilate murdered on their way to worship. Hence the mixing of the blood with the sacrifice. And you know... It's human nature, you and I know this, to justify ourselves, to attempt to justify ourselves. We learn this from the time that we're little, and we need to be okay in someone else's eyes. And we start this from a very early age. And the easiest way to do that, or one of the easiest ways to do that, is to simply compare ourselves to others. Now, we literally, in this world, will kill ourselves trying to measure up to those that we deem to be worthy of as idols or icons that we think, oh, they're in another league than us. They're better than us. If only we were like them, then it would all be gravy. And when we feel the, the weight of not attaining that, it leads to great destruction and the loss of life. But we are also experts at identifying those people that we deem less smart, less responsible, less friendly, less, I mean, we can come up with a whole list of things. Those folks that we deem less whatever than us, we identify them. And by these people, we feel more secure when it comes to the overarching laws of the universe, figuring, hey, when it comes to people who could use a good dose of humility or judgment, I'm safely in the middle. You know, I'm doing all right. I can see myself in the vast sea. Just look at so-and-so over there. I'm like I, I, it, it's not that bad yet. I'm doing all right, you know. Just pay attention to that guy. Or did you read the news yesterday? Or oh my goodness, can you believe somebody would do that? The audacity, right? What were they thinking? They must not have been thinking. In fact, they're just an idiot. But thankfully, I'm not. I find myself in here, you know, and don't have those kind of things. Just look at those people. For heaven's sake, those crazy people. Well, there were some present with Jesus, as is not surprised to us. And they're trying to justify themselves. And they're saying, oh, yeah, you heard, of course, Jesus about the story of those four people that were massacred on their way to worship. You know, 
obviously, don't you think, Jesus, they were probably worse sinners than everyone else in the area. I mean, in Jerusalem. That's, that's, can, you, can you affirm for us that they did something wrong to deserve that so that we can feel better because it hasn't happened to us? And Jesus starkly responds, Do you think that these were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, of course not. And then he even gives another example. Right? He talks about a construction accident. Well, hey, remember over there when the Tower of Siloam fell and it killed 18 people? You think that was their fault that that happened? Or that there were other things involved? I remember uh, you know, shortly after 9-11, so this was 2001, I was in youth ministry. And I mean, every worship service you went to, it seemed like people were grappling with the idea that, ooh, God must be mad at America. God must be mad at New York. God must be mad at somebody because these things happen. And then just three years later, we had the big tsunami, remember, in the Indonesia area, and and a massive destruction, and so many lives lost, and those same people chirping up, oh, those people over in Indonesia, obviously not living right, must be because of their voodoo or something going on over there, and God's just wiping those people out. And then, just a couple of years later, back here in the States, we hear, we all remember 2006 and uh, Hurricane Katrina and the same people back on TV going, yeah, those people in New Orleans, they're just, they finally pushed it to the limit. They had one too many Mardi Gras and there, and there they go. It's their fault that this destruction befell them. So we haven't changed that much in terms of how we try to dissect things, you know, figure this out and assign blame to somebody else. Jesus says, no, it's different than that. And he connects it to their own lives, to the things that they're really asking about. Because they're wanting to know about judgment. They're wanting to know if God really cares. And if he does, why does he allow, why is this stuff happening? That's the same kind of questions we ask today. And Jesus says a couple of times, look, bring it back down to the local level. And let's think about the things that, that y'all need to repent of. You know, and I'm thinking, these are the things that we need to take inventory of and consider. Me, personally, I tend to be a the rules don't apply to me sort of guy. I don't know if that's a shock to you or not. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a rule follower as long as everyone else is concerned. But for me, personally, I like to push the limits. And I like to think like, oh, they said it was going to start at 5 o'clock. I bet 5.05 will be just fine. It's no big deal. I even take a little pride in that. You know, I can push the limits and work this. So it's like the chairperson. So I'm, I'm chairing the board of ministry in Northwest Texas, and we've got a meeting today that starts at uh, 5.30. And, of course, bad scheduling because I didn't know when the Red Raiders were going to be playing. But here we are. We can't change it now. I've got to be there. And, um, you know, it's like the chairperson sets a meeting for 5.30, and I say, and then and then he says, hey, Ryan, I need you to, you know, brief the folks on some things. I need you to be ready with your report. Demonstrate the things that you've been, that you've done what you said you were going to do. And we're going to start all that at 5.30. So be there sharp. And I show up at 5.30 and the chairperson, you know, he trots along. And it's not until 6 o'clock that he wanders in. And every week we have that meeting. And he does the same thing. Ryan, be ready at 5.30. And he shows up at 6. So what I do after a couple of months of this, I say, all right. Not only am I going to show up not until 6, but I'm also not going to prepare anymore because he's not calling on me and I'm not worried about it. That's one less thing that I have to do. Check that off my list. 
And Jesus is saying, look, don't assume that God has forgotten about justice because you don't see him showing up to the meeting at what we deem on time. Don't assume that he's forgotten about justice. Don't presume that judgment is not a necessary part of God's mercy. So I think Jesus is telling us these stories. He's responding. Luke records this for us so that we can sit for a little bit with the prospect of judgment. Not an undue vision or appreciation of judgment, but judgment nonetheless. It's a time to take honest inventory, to take a look at where we actually sit or stand. Not for arbitrary reasons do we do this, but for the glory of life and beauty and possibility and for the glory of God. So Jesus continues with this logic. And as he often does to illustrate a point, he tells a story. He tells a riddle. He tells a parable. He says, okay, well, let's look at it this way, guys. He says, suppose there was a man. And he had planted this fig tree in his vineyard. Now think about all the, all the possibility of a vineyard. And there's this one fig tree. And it was planted there. And the owner of this land, he came seeking fruit on this fig tree. And he found no fruit. And so he said to the gardener, to the farmer that was in charge, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I don't find any fruit. Why don't you cut it down? Because it's taking up space, right? If that fig tree is not going to produce, my spreadsheet says cut that sucker down and let's start over. It seems like three years is long enough and we should be ready to go. And the farmer answers him. And I mean, the farmer is the hero of this story, right? He answers, he says, okay, okay, sir, just give me one more year. Give me one more year and let me work in some compost and manure, and let me take a little care of this tree, and you check back with me in a year, all right? If it doesn't produce after all that, then fine. We'll cut it down. But if it does, then we'll be better off. Have you ever known someone like this? Have you ever known someone like this gardener, like this farmer? I've known, I've known coaches like this and teachers like this. When we as a board or we as a collective group of teachers or coaches, we've wanted to take some kid and write them off. Or, and you know, as coaches, we're going, oh man, we got to cut this poor guy. That's Strebeck. I tell you what, he can't, not only does he not have the ability to get where he needs to be on the court, he just, he can't seem to remember the plays. And he just, it's like he's bringing everyone else down to his level. We need to cut him if we want to ever win games in the future, right? So, and sometimes you have to do that. Sometimes you have to make those hard decisions. And every once in a while, there's a coach that will step in, and they see something that everybody else has missed. And they see something, and they go, you know, I'm not so sure. You give me one year with that kid, right? You give that kid one, one offseason with Coach Bird, and let's see, let's see what happens. All right, just, give me, just grant me that, just that one year, and let's see where we are. The agricultural context for Jesus' work and our work as Christians never gets old. It never gets outdated. 
no matter how industrialized our world is or how much more immediate our resources are, whether it be the water at the tap or the food at Whataburger, we never outgrow the need for understanding the spiritual life with metaphors of agriculture. Because we were created to have our hands in the dirt. We as human beings need our hands in the dirt to understand the world. For some of us it's gardening, others of us it's raising animals, uh, maybe, it's, maybe it's simply a, a pot of flowers on your kitchen windowsill. I was in a car with some guys this last week who were talking about how much they love you know, being able to go out in the country and visit and, and blow off steam and do things out there when they're not working. We were made to have our hands in the dirt. Yesterday, it just, it just got the better of me. You know, spring fever, it was warm, and many of you have talked about this, and I was like, okay, that's it. I'm putting something in the ground today. <laughs> I don't care what it is. I'm going to find some piece of dirt that I can plant a seed in. It's just too pretty. There's too much potential. The sun is too, it's just too ripe. I'm going to go do it. So didn't have time to do it. The kids certainly didn't want to be interrupted from their stuff to do it. But by golly, we did it anyways. We got messy, we got dirty, and we put some stuff in the ground. Now, they may not all survive at this stage, and I know we can always have a hard freeze and snow at Easter and all that stuff, but I was sick of it. I was like, it's too, it's too much. If the weeds can grow, then it, I can plant some other stuff, okay? So we're working through it. And you know, the thing you realize every time you plant, and like at our house is no different, and we kind of are gardening in flower beds, all, all soil is not created equal, right? Some soil I have, I can depend on. I go, this is this will be the third season of gardening, and I know I can grow that plant there. And there are other places that have just not done well. And I'm thinking, I got, I got some love to give to this soil. I need some nutrients that this soil doesn't have, or we're not going to be able to grow anything. So I was trying to explain to Ethan why some places that we planted things had earthworms, and other places had no worms. And we were just talking about the difference, right? All soil, not the same. And that's what this gardener in Jesus' story knew. He knew that it's all about the soil. And if you can give me some time to cultivate and to bring nutrients in, anything is possible. Now, I love the optimism of farmers. I love the optimism of farmers. And every farmer, even if they seem grumpy all the time, which many of us when we're farming do, they are the most optimistic people in the world. Now, let me tell you why. Wendell Berry, the, the Kentucky poet and uh, farmer, lifelong farmer in, uh, in, in western Kentucky, he, he wrote a series of poems called the Mad Farmer Poems. And he doesn't mean the angry farmer poems. He means farmers are crazy. But they are outside their mind. Like no one is crazier than farmers because they're full of optimism and they have no good reason to be optimistic. Because every year, farmers go out and they plant seeds knowing that the conditions will certainly not be good. And if one thing doesn't get you, then something else will. If it's not the drought, it's going to be the wind. And if it's not that, it's going to be hail. And if those things are all great, it's going to be the markets. Right? Something is going to go wrong in every farming season. And still, they go out there year after year, those men and women, and they put seeds in the ground. It's madness. But isn't it wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? Doesn't it have all kinds of hope and potential? 
Farmers love the soil. They love the capacity of the land. They love it so much that they say, just give me one more year. Give me one more year with that plot. Whether it's 40 acres, 3,400 acres, or a pot on your kitchen windowsill, just give me one more year. I'm not ready to assign unfruitfulness to that spot yet. Y'all are done, but I'm not done yet. And, you know, Jesus' presence as the advocate farmer here doesn't say, oh, it's it's all good, you know, Jesus, we're all sinners, we're all just a bunch of, you know, sorry human beings, but it's okay because Jesus came and died for our sins, so it's all fine. Let's just resume story as usual. No, Jesus there, as the advocate farmer, is saying there is still time. There's still time to be transformed. There's still time to become good soil. It's never too late, right? There's always another farming season. There's always another shot. You may feel a long ways from healthy soil or from a fruitful orchard, but the wisdom and the will and the power of the merciful farmer is great. And I said there always be another farming season, but what Jesus is saying is one day there won't be any more of these farming seasons as the end. But he's holding out and he's patient because of mercy, because of love. And we all get a sense when we know these stories that we just cannot fathom the depths of God's mercy or God's patience. Remember Paul's prayer? That was one of Paul's most famous prayers as he prayed that the church in Ephesus would know how high and how deep and how wide and how far-reaching was the love of God in Christ Jesus because it's, it's unfathomable. So one of the great prayers to pray is, Lord, give me the knowledge of just how vast that canyon of mercy is. Just let me see a glimpse of it. And, you know, the strange thing is um, this motivates us. You would think it would make us lazy, but it motivates us when we catch a glimpse of God's mercy. It wins us over. It, it brings us to tears, right? It breaks us down. And it gives us a sense of urgency, saying, oh, my goodness. Why, why have I spent so much time on this, that, and this, that, and this, that? And there are people in my life that don't know that God's mercy looks like this. They think God's mercy eclipsed them somehow. I've got, to, I've got to remind them of that. There are people that are literally dying because they haven't seen this mercy. They haven't remembered it in a while. So this story of this crazy, mad farmer, it, it motivates us. Right? It motivates us to be evangelists, to come and have a hearing with this farmer, right? to come and submit the soil to the hands of somebody that knows what to do with it. It's a call to come and receive God's mercy, to be converted, to be an evangelist, to carry the word and the dream of the merciful mad farmer with you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.